Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, June 29th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. How is it already the end of June? That's bananas. All right, guys, I have a really, really exciting show for you this week. It was, um, I have to say, up there um, as one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far. I really just think that it was very important topically, and I had an awful lot of fun doing it. But before I introduce our guest, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible over the last week. And remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. I keep the model that way through selling ad space, but also, I mean, honestly, the, the most important thing here is support from listeners just like you. So the, the best way to support the show is to visit patreon.com slash talk nerdy, and you can pledge a weekly dollar amount, like even a dollar um, per episode helps so much. You have no idea. Um, you can also like rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere that you download podcasts. And you can even buy... Uh, um, by cool merchandise, um, uh, one of the more recent, uh, what do you call it? Like designs features my dog killer. So they say, you know, science killer on them. They're very cute, but there's like mugs and t-shirts and hoodies and tank tops and, you know, pretty much anything you can think of. And that's at talknerdymerch.com. 
But on Patreon, I do want to thank the top patrons who supported this week, and they include Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Christopher Pitts, um, June Sapara, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Charles Payet, Brian Holden, Daniel Lang, and of course, David J.E. Smith. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. And from everybody listening, thank you because you guys make this show possible. Okay, let's talk about this week's episode. I am so excited that I had a chance to sit down, I mean, you know, sit down remotely with Gaia Vince. She is a um, science journalist, author, broadcaster, and speaker who has won a ton of really prestigious awards. And um, she's written for all sorts of amazing outlets like BBC, The Guardian, New Scientist, Australian Geographic, Science. She's worked on science documentaries. She gives talks. Um, and she has also been a senior editor at um, Nature, Nature Climate Change, and New Scientist magazine. Um She's got a, a couple books, and her newest book is the one that we're going to be talking about today, um, and it is called Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. So really one of the central themes that we're, you know, that we discuss in our conversation is this idea that evolution is not just a biological function, it's, it's interwoven with interpersonal relationships, culture, society, um, kinship, these things really cannot be removed from the conversation that we have about human evolution. And because of that, there are a lot of new and different and important ways to be thinking about the human journey. So um, yeah, you know what? She says it way better than I do. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. So without any further ado, here she is, Gaia Vince. Gaia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, such a pleasure to talk to you all the way from London to LA. It's a it's a long distance, but um, but only a few seconds away. <laughs> I know, and I'm so excited to be talking about your newest book, Transcendence: How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. And of course, we were kind of shooting the shit before we even started recording, and we're getting into some some good stuff. Um, and I want to continue those conversations. I think the first thing that I, I would love to ask, though, just right out the bat, is how in the hell did you fit all of that into a not too long book? Because you basically were like, I know, I'll write a book about everything. Oh my goodness. This has been <laughs> this has been an absolute logistical nightmare. You have no idea how many um, pieces of paper, post-its where I tried to structure it. I tried to because because yeah, it's human evolution and it can and it contains human cultural evolution. So obviously it contains everything. <laughs> so yeah. from everywhere, all about us. But at the same time, I was very conscious that, you know, I didn't want to write um, some sort of encyclopedia, some massive tome. I really wanted to keep it focused and keep it as brief as I could, really, to just to bring out some really, um, what to me were, were just some key points about, about who we are and why we are, you know, why we are this extraordinary character. <laughs> Absolutely. And and one thing that I love so much is that it also has a point of view because kind of one thing we we're talking about off air that I love to get back into is that this space, this 
evolutionary biology, even evolutionary psychology, culture. This has been historically dominated from a scientific perspective by white dudes, like Western white dudes have told this story. And it's so, I think, refreshing to hear, you know, an incredibly accomplished science writer compiling this information and telling the story with a point of view that is... uh, is egalitarian, like just a point of view that like thinks about women and thinks about people of color and that that is part of the story. And lots of times it's just left out or, or it's twisted in a way that feels very colonial. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is really rare. I mean, people, this Mm -hmm. field is dominated. It is dominated by, um, by very charismatic, um, famous, white men and and so it is difficult i think to to enter that space um just it's it's a little intimidating um but at the same point i you know i i almost have this kind of, i'm almost compelled i'm almost compelled to get into that space because i have things that i want to say that come from my perspective as as a woman and as um somebody who has traveled a lot and um and spent a lot of time with people from all different backgrounds and i don't feel i don't see their 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 perspective uh sort of uh i don't see it show up in a lot of these books and yeah. and for me there is um this is a book so 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 my background is in is actually in um chemistry physical chemistry so i'm i'm interested in in that whole um aspect of things and so it was it was kind of almost driven by by the energy um relationship you know how or, you know mm. all life is limited by how much energy it can harness and somehow we have entered this new we've created this new geological era the anthropocene we've we've created a time where humans dominate dominate the planet dominate the rest of nature and we do that because we've harnessed so much energy but then how how did we harness so much energy how did something that evolved you know as i believe i don't think that we were sort of created as uh, in the image of a god and just plonked down I, I believe that we evolved just like every other creature evolved, but then also not just like every other creature has evolved because yeah. we are exceptional. We really are different. And um, we have something that is it has transformed us, where, whereas, whereas chimpanzees are, are living as they have done for millions of years in their tropical forest with just a few tools and a few kind of um, learned behaviours. We have completely transformed ourselves and the planet. And we've done that because of our culture, because we have evolved this, um, this cumulative culture. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to delve into. And I wanted to look at what made us and how, how this evolutionary process took place, because it is fascinating. And as, and as you look around the world, you do see, you know, we are so different in so many ways from, you know, uh, somebody who lives in Alaska is so different from somebody who lives in Mumbai, who's very different from um, an Aboriginal who lives in uh, the red centre of Australia. Biologically, we're almost exactly the same, but culturally right. we're so different. And and to date, almost everything has focused on, um, science-wise, almost everything has focused on these 
very, very, very small differences between populations. But what I wanted to say was actually, look, there's something bigger going on here. We're culturally different. We've culturally evolved, but, but fundamentally our cognition and our biology is, is pretty much the same. And where differences have evolved, they've evolved because of our culture. Right. So, um, so this is, there are these kind of feedback processes. I call it our human evolutionary triad. And it's this, it's this kind of concept that I came up with where, where all three of these, the environment, our biology, our genes and our culture all feed back on each other. And, um, I don't think it's really been appreciated how important our environment has been. And so what that means now as we've completely transformed our environment, is that this is going to have an effect. It's going to have an effect on our culture. It's also going to have an effect on our biology. And we're already kind of seeing some of that right now. So um, mm-hmm. so anyway, that's what I wanted to explore. And, I, and, and of course, I'm going to explore it um, as a woman and look at things that I don't think have been um, appreciated in this evolution, under this evolutionary perspective before. You know, things like, you know, why is it that in some cultures women have, um, we, we live in a patriarchy where women have so, such few rights and uh, are considered um, perhaps inferior to men um, cognitively or, or behaviorally, um, whereas in mm. other cultures, they're just not. You know, is that because in some cultures women are inferior to men? Is it our biology um, or is it culture? Have we evolved that? And have we evolved it culturally? And and yes, I think we have. So that's my conclusion. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you see the same thing with uh, quote unquote race. I mean, I think the, 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 the central thesis that you just laid out, it's so important. And I think it bears reiterating. And I'd love to grapple with it for just a second before we move on. And the reason for that, I'll say for background, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe only a week ago now, well, as of the time this will air, it will have been maybe a month ago, um, on The Skeptic's Guide, the other podcast I work on, we had Angela Saini on to talk about, you know, that very, uh, that very thing. And I couldn't believe that we would, we actually got emails from people pushing back on the idea that race is a cultural concept and that you know, human biology really from a morphological perspective, from a genetic perspective, varies so minimally from what we might consider arbitrarily race to race that really we're just talking about something like melanin. Um, you know, people want to think that human beings are have breeds like dogs and that, that we evolved on islands, I suppose. And this conversation about the fact, you know, I, I remember going back and forth a lot with a listener who wrote in and was like really frustrated because he was like, if you go to Japan, you can say that person's Japanese and it's so obvious. And I was like, yeah, but if you say Asian, what does that mean? Like, what does somebody from Southern India have anything to do with somebody from, you know, a, an island in Indonesia? Or when you say black and you're referring to, let's say, an African origin, how is anybody from Senegal, you know, genetically in any way related to somebody from Namibia? These The differences there are almost more from a genetic perspective, from a language perspective, from a cultural perspective, than the differences between, you know, me, a, a Puerto Rican white woman living in America, 
and I don't know, somebody living in Pakistan. It's just, it's amazing to me that people want to hold on to the idea that racial divisions are biologically based deeply. Like, it's just hard for people to understand that this is a cultural and in in many ways, kind of like academic endeavor, like it's a bad taxonomy that human beings have have superimposed. It's a construct that they've laid on top of the idea of differences in people. Well, indeed, it is. It's so so. There is more difference between uh, chimpanzees on either side of the Congo River than there are between humans. Right from different continents. Um, and that's partly because we evolved relatively recently, two to 300,000 years ago. And since then, we have interbred, we have mixed, we have, you know, humans, um, uh, human evolution has led us to be incredibly cooperative. And we're so cooperative, not just with our family, but with complete strangers. And we network. And so our networks include we're not tribal like chimpanzees are. We don't cooperate in the same way as um, social species like ants. We cooperate really yeah. with with um, with genetic strangers, and so these networks build, and that means we're having sex with people from from everywhere. You know, we're even having sex with Neanderthals, different species, and Denisovans. Mm-hmm. You know, so as a result, we're really really intermixed, and so that's why we can't say. Um, that there are distinct races. You know, there are biologically biological differences that have emerged more in certain populations because of the environment sure. that they've lived in. But you can't you can't um, distinguish people by uh, things like skin color, for example. You can't put all people with um, dark skin together and say they're all similar. Um, and you can't put people with white skin to- together and say they're all similar because it, it just doesn't work like that. It's bad science. It doesn't, it, it, it isn't. And it's also, it's also quite a strange thing to do um, because what, what are you really trying to say there? What, what, you know, what is the distinction you're trying to make? Essentially, it's to say right, that's the important. It's point. a value laden thing. It's to say my mm-hmm. my race, my whiter skin is better than your darker skin, and not not the skin is better, but the person underneath is better than that person. Right. And um, it's just it's an absolute scientifically, it's an absolute nonsense. But in every way, it's a nonsense because. Um, well, because we're because biologically we're all pretty much the same, but also because there is something to be said about culture. There is something to be said about the mindset that a different society has. You know, if you live in a society which um, which is more egalitarian, which values people um, uh, more similarly, doesn't have these very distinct hierarchies, and say that um, you know, for example. A society that that distinguishes massively in terms of race, and so, um, for example, American society where the uh, where uh, black people tend to make up the poorest and the most um, the most uh, socially um, prejudiced against in society. They will also mm-hmm. have the least chances, the least opportunities, and they will will they will have worst health out- outcomes. They will have worse education outcomes. They'll have worse economic outcomes because we have colluded as a society to make that so. 
um, in a society which is more egalitarian, uh, people tend to have more opportunities and therefore do better. So, so um, this is all a socially contrived idea that we collude in and, and uh, keep people in these in these places. And it's 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 unhealthy to do that for all of us because we all benefit from diversity diversity of um, of uh, uh, experience that we bring to um, things and diversity of diversity of opinion diversity well all diversity I mean. Evolution in biology, evolution in um, ecosystems, it all depends on diversity. It, that's the healthiest sort of ecosystem and it's the healthiest sort of society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's such an interesting idea. It, it, it frustrates me a little bit when you hear people push back. And sometimes I don't know if it's willful ignorance, if it's motivated reasoning, if it's, you know, I try to use the principle of charity and think when people are writing in, they're just genuinely like not exposed to these kinds of ideas. And this is maybe the first time they're hearing them. Um, but one of the things that really does frustrate me is when people sort of straw man this conversation and they say, you know, how could you say that race doesn't matter or that race isn't real? And it's like, no, no, no. What we're saying is that it's not so much a biological concept, but it is a social concept. And so it does have real outcomes. Like you mentioned, um, this idea that uh, generally speaking, almost throughout the globe, right? And I'm interested to know in your research from a historical perspective, if it's always been this way, when it really started to develop, but almost throughout the globe, there has been this sort of strange um, concept or or idea that dark skin is somehow inferior and light skin is somehow superior. But is that really just a Western colonial view? Or is this something that goes back even before there were these kind of like European empires that were trying to conquer other nations? Well, I mean, historically, it's all pretty recent. It's within within yeah, centuries. Right. Um, I mean, it, it takes place in all different in all sorts of different nations. I mean, India, for example, which has had um, you know the Mughals coming in with slightly lighter skin than the um, than the indigenous people from the south. Um, so they set up a hierarchy. It's it's to do with power. It's to do with keeping your um, uh, position. Um, in society. And, and I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about before. So this idea that, mm. um, that because we're not ants, so ants can rely on each other. They're social insects and they, they're incredibly that, you know, they, they make these amazing, um, nests. They make, um, they, they do all kinds of incredible sorts of behaviors which rely on cooperation and rely on um, sometimes sacrificing themselves for, for um, their community. We, but they, they do that knowing that they are, well, not knowing, they do that um, with the result that if they do sacrifice, they're sacrificing themselves for their genes, right? It's this, it's this kind of selfish right. gene um, idea that their genes persist. So they're actually helping themselves, essentially. They're helping their genes. But we are different. So we we socialize and we cooperate and we have these incredibly much, much more complex um, societies where we rely on each other for everything, you know, from birth onwards. We rely on 
everybody. We rely on strangers who we are not related to. And that that makes us very, very vulnerable because it means that um, it means we're reliant essentially on somebody who isn't who isn't part of our gene pool. So mm. what we do to prove that we are trustworthy and we are worthy of being kept within our group and therefore receiving its support and its protection is try and show that we are, if not genetic family, we're cultural family. And we do that right. by um, copying each other, by taking on these sort of tribal aspects where um, – you know, we learn the tribal niceties, you know, we use a knife and fork when we sit down, we don't sort of like throw it in with our hands. Um, but then in other cultures, of course, it will be using chopsticks or eating with the right hand or whatever it is. These, um, these manners, these social norms. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital, así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Um, of our behavior and the way and the way we eat, what we eat, how we speak, what we, uh, what language we use, um, how we address different members of our society, all of that um, proves that we are conforming. We're conforming to our tribe, and our tribe um, is is strong because of that. And who are we proving how, you know, one of the best ways of proving that we are part of a tribe is to show that is to, to other, other people to, to say that this is our group and, um, that is not our group. That is the out group. You know, we are, we are, um, distinguished by not being them. So, mm -hmm. so as a result, um, whatever it is, whether it's, um, skin color, You know, that's a that's a recent one, or it could be um, head shape, 
in um, some indigenous wow. tribes or um, a, a particular type of tattoo or the um, the the uh, accent we use or the the words we use you know you you hear teenage speak and it's it's constantly evolving it's difficult to ca- keep up with and if you try and keep up with it as um as an older adult you just look like an idiot because because you can't <laughs> authentically be part of that group right you're trying to be yeah. part of that group but you are not you're other and it's and it's um and part of the reason that they're doing this is to is to form their groups and so so one of the kind of achilles heel of um of human society is that we are very tribal we do form these um tribes to show that we are um that we are cultural uh that we are cultural family and so you know with this we we have to copy each other so so with this it means that people who are a little bit different who do stick out quite often end up you know getting um having to live with the sort of social costs of that they can be ostracized you know they can have all sorts of you know people who are disabled who look a bit different who have a different accent mm-hmm. who are migrants who are, you know we all know how our society treats these people um and we can say, well, we're biologically evolved to do that. But the whole point of human cultural evolution is that we are not biologically evolved to do that. We make it up as we go along. We can change that. We can become kinder people. We can change our society. We're not, you know, um, a, a, a lion will chase um, an antelope and eat that antelope and that is evolution. That is part of an evolved behavior. The lion is not going to turn around and be vegetarian. You know, right. we are not, we, you know, we are not compelled to, um, to live out whatever our environment, our um, evolutionary trajectory is, because that's the whole point of human evolution. We, we make ourselves. And so that's not an excuse for racism or sexism or, um, or discrimination against anybody or just being nasty. It's not an excuse because we are capable of choosing our own um, our own destiny. We're capable of choosing our society and changing it. And we have in many ways for the better, you know? Right. All those tribal pressures, all of those in-group, out-group pressures, they're social pressures. They're not um, biological pressures. And so even though they might be deeply seeded in the idea of, you know, uh, genetic fitness or evolutionary fitness, you're right. There's this layer on top of it that is a cultural layer. So if we can societally feel those types of pressures, we can also societally transcend those types of pressures. Exactly. Yeah. So we, 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 they feed back on each other. Our, our biology feeds back on our culture and our environment and all sorts of different things. And we see that, we see that happening now. So, um, yeah, you know, um, f- for example, um, we are omnivores, you know, that we evolved mm-hmm. as omnivores just as chimpanzees did. I mean, that's our, um, that's our evolutionary basis, but we can become vegans if we want, and that's a kind of growing group. Or there are plenty of, um, you know, strange groups that are eating only meat or only, mm-hmm. you know, these. Um, we, we can choose, and we will still survive. 
you know, because we, we, because our culture and biology can feed back on each other and our environment. So what's available to us and how we can change that. Um, we're not, you know, we're not um, driven um, in the same way. We, we are, you know, we are capable of transcending our biological evolution in so many different ways. And, and, and that's what we've always done. And I think that's what makes us so fascinating, but also so problematic as a, as a species. Right. So, you know, it, it really does bring me to this, I think, fundamental question about, you know, a lot of these conversations that we have about tribalism and about in-group, out-group status and those kinds of social pressures, often the obvious example like the obvious exemplar in those conversations is race, right? Because this is where we see a lot of conflict and this is where we see a lot of atrocities, like real human atrocities have been committed for um, religious, geopolitical, racial purposes. Um, but then even within yeah. that, I think it's really interesting that, mm -hmm. um, that you know, we can, we can use that, but, but the closer people look, um, to each other, the, the more we have to come up with um, other tribal signifiers. Right. So if you take, for example, Northern Ireland, the Catholics and the Protestants fighting each other, I mean, they're the same people. We look at the, mm -hmm. um, the Jews and the um, Palestinian Arabs, you know, they're again, the same people, you know, um, we look at, so, so, um, so, so we have to accentuate our differences in order to in order to make this tribal war because because other, otherwise you know what what are we fighting against it, biologically there is no racial racial difference we we invent right. this racial difference and it's particularly ridiculous when we don't even look different right trying to assert that there's yeah. a difference in race um it's it, you know it's it's so obvious then i think it's it's less obvious perhaps when it's um people who um who who look more different then you can perhaps say oh well maybe one group you know um is better than the other or whatever um yeah as people have argued you know for millennia but you're right like this idea that that the more similar the groups are, the more they have to magnify maybe cultural, well, they're all cultural differences, but geopolitical differences, religious, ideological differences. Um, you know, even you look at, I don't know, the Civil War in the US, like who, what were they fighting over? The, the Southern people wanted to keep slaves. And the Northerners were saying, no, I think it's time not to keep slaves. But they were the same Americans that were fighting. Um, but that was an ideological war, you know. And so you're, you're so right about that. I guess, the, the difference that I see and sort of the reason that this one particular issue feels out of step with a tribal um, war is the concept of, of gender equity, because every culture requires that women and men coexist, right? And so, but we also know that for most of modern human history, women have been subjugated, that what we're used to seeing are patriarchal societies. But men couldn't just say, women, let me kill you all, or women, let's kick you out of our tribe, because then the tribe would die. So things get really complicated when we start to talk about equity um, in a gender um, kind of perspective. And 
uh, I know that you've studied this a lot, this idea of patriarchal societies. How far back do they go? When did they become prevalent? Why do they persist? Um, this is really on my mind right now because I just binged all of Handmaid's Tale <laughs> and it was so like horrifying. But also, I think the reason that a lot of people resonate with Atwood's book is because it's dystopian, but it, it's only a few steps away. You know what I mean? Like she so beautifully shows how easily society could move into that kind of place where women are back to being chattel, where women are back to being um, basically birthing um, slaves. And it's horrifying. It is horrifying. And it does feel like um, we take two steps forward and one step back in this whole, um, in this whole kind of gender war. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, every time I think things are getting better, um, you realize actually, are they, you know, um, I, yeah, I feel kind of depressed about that whole, um, our progress on that at the moment, particularly, especially, um, in, in the societies that um, are dominating my head at the moment, like so Britain and, and um, the US, we have these mm -hmm. um, very male-driven um, political establishments, but also um, heads of corporations, heads of everything. And it feels, it feels um, the gender pay gap is still massive. Um, we have all sorts of issues with um, maternity um, pay. We've just had this this pandemic lockdown, which has definitely affected men, uh, women far more than men. They're doing the bulk of the childcare, the homeschooling. Um, just from my own my own little bubble, my own social circle of really strong, um, independent, professional, um, you know, excellent women that I happen to be friends with. <laughs> God knows how. Mm -hmm. They're all um, very high achieving women, and yet almost entirely it's the women in a relationship with children that have um that have put their work on hold while the men are much less affected because somebody has got to look after the children when we don't have the social situation you know the social system of schooling um and other childcare then somebody has to look after those children and it's almost entirely been the men and um that's really right. shocking to me that's really um it's really shocking how that's played out so quickly and so um, easily. Um, but yeah, so in terms of the history of that, well, I mean, I think that for almost all of human history, this was not true. Men and women were, um, were we lived in egalitarian society. Men, men and women didn't necessarily have the same roles in society, but they had the same um they had the same um, hierarchical position. So um, women were just as likely to choose um, where the family would live or um, um, bring home the same number of calories from whatever they were doing, um, hunting or gathering. Um, and they mm -hmm. were just as important. And I think there's a lot of evidence to show that for a start, um, hunter-gatherer communities today um, are remarkably egalitarian um in terms of gender um but also if you if you look at how human societies um were formed cooperation has been key throughout our evolution it's what has allowed us to become so successful and 
it means that we've had to rely on each other and the only and and to network okay to be able to trade with each other for resources which which gives us this kind of freedom to move away from um away from food or away from water supply away from other um essential resources we need because we're able to then try um trade with what we need um among different tribes. And that requires networking. And the way to have the most and the broadest network is for both families to, um, to for both, both so, so for the male and the female of the family unit to have um, equal mm-hmm. power so that both sets of in-laws um, can take as much of a role um, in the um, in the childcare um, and also in in the sort of family networking. So you know, once so say um, you know John marries Sue, and then um, Sue's parents, their the um, Sue's mother's family is also um, as respected and as important as Sue's father's family, and as um, John's family, you then have this enormous branching network that just gets bigger and bigger, and everybody is um, uh, everybody is able to draw on um, distant connections um, quite easily. As soon as you as soon as you take um, a woman from her um, family home and t- and take her away to the father's um, village. Or whatever, and she de- no longer has any contact essentially with her family and with that side. You've you've massively limited your networking potential, and that's what um, started to happen when we started to settle. Um, right. So so once so so I mean that I think that egalitarian societies were the norm for a long part of um, a long part of our evolutionary history, most of our evolutionary history until relatively recently when we did start to settle. And then um, it started really with um, children being um, being a valuable resource, being, being owned. So once you own your children because they become a source of labor, because agriculture is so incredibly labor intensive, then you own the woman who produces the children and then you uh, then you start fighting for your land and the um, children and the women and the, the whole of the uh, the social the genetic the um, gender hierarchy completely changes, um, and you you start owning you start owning women's sexuality because you want to be sure that the children you're supporting are your children. Um, whereas before, when we were hunter gatherers, there's uh, there's been Looking at current hunter-gatherer um, populations, there's a lot more fluidity. Um, children are kind of um, co-parented a lot more among um, among the group, and um, there are matriarchal societies where um, where women um, produce children with different men, and and it's yeah, it's a lot less um, restrictive as um, than current society. It's less about the nuclear family and more about like the kin group, right? Yeah. Where there's kind of equal roles or at least maybe not always equal, but at least um, cooperative roles within a larger spread of individuals. I mean, I love how you just laid out this sort of evolution of um, the loss of power, the increased power in the in the male groups and how that m- kind of 
developed from a transactional sort of um, economic uh, perspective. And I think that's, of course, beautifully, beautifully encapsulated in Handmaid's Tale. Like, that's exactly what it is. It's transactional in a world where not all women were fertile. They really placed a premium on fertile women and they use them as birthing machines, basically, um, for the richer uh, for the richer couples who had more power. Um, I think the interesting thing, though, is that in some ways it actually flies in the face of what we do know about um, fitness and biology. I know that when I read um, Angela's Angela Saini's other book about uh, women, so superior, I think, not inferior, or maybe it's the other way around, um, she cited a really interesting study that showed that like the first predictor of infant um, mortality, or I guess negative predictor, um, inverse predictor, is the mother. And then the second is the grandmother. And then the father, <laughs> like having grandparents around is actually more conducive to thriving children than even having fathers around um, because of the caregiving that they do. And so it's really interesting that the newer sort of Western model removed the mother's parents from the equation altogether because the mother was basically sold into the into the father's family. Yeah, indeed. And also with the advent of agriculture, people started um dying <laughs> of various diseases. So um so I mean in some ways it also took away that um that relationship with the grandparents that is so key. And I think, I mean, I explore right. that quite a bit in my book as well, this kind of the, the importance of grandparents um, and alloparenting and other people to look after the children and to pass on um, that knowledge, uh, whether it's about um, how to prepare food or um, how to how to breastfeed your child, you know, all of these things are learnt in in um, human societies. They're not innate, right? And yeah, like women don't know how to deal if uh, if that's why we have like you know when a woman gives birth in a hospital, if the child won't latch, there are like nursing specialists and lactation specialists who teach her yeah. but you're right in a culture where where that doesn't exist you're going to rely on your sisters and your aunts and your mothers and your grandparents exactly older older on. women are um are incredibly important for that sort of thing and and just birth itself i mean it, again that's not something that humans can do alone it's it's something that we have to we have to rely on others to do the evolutionary process prioritized our culture over our biology. So whereas um, other other animals can give birth alone, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty it's a pretty basic thing to be able to produce the next generation, to produce to to get those genes out there alive and able to survive. You know, some some animals don't even need a mother there. With mammals, they do need a mother. Um, uh, but but for us, we went for this uh, bigger brain, but the smaller pelvis side and put smaller pelvis size. And we have to do our bigger brain requires this kind of double turn within the um, vaginal cavity to, to actually get that infant out safely, um, which is which is all pretty much impossible on your own. You need other people to help birth. So so basically our, our our evolutionary process, which produced this entire setup, 
was reliant on our sociality, on the fact that we cooperate enough that there would be people around to help you give birth. Um, otherwise, our species would have would have not survived. We would have gone extinct, right? If they if that, so it's yeah. a bit of a gamble. <laughs> We often make a really false dichotomy, I think, between like, oh, biology and genetics is over here. And then, uh, you know, society and culture is over there. But they co-evolved in such an inextricable way that you really can't tease them out when you start to look at our core fundamental roots, can no, you? No, and I think that's that's something that I really, really wanted to bring out with this book, um, that, that they are, that this is a co-evolutionary process the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at, for example, we're one of the very, very few mammals that um, where women survive after their fertility goes. So, so um, menopausal women don't just die they're still really, really useful in society. So past their fertility, they're not just useful in order to produce the next generation. They're useful way beyond that. Um, And the reason is because of things like this, because they um, look after the infants. So so in societies where the grandmother is a, is alive, the generation, the next generation does so much better. The survival rate of grandchildren is uh, much higher generally than when the um, grandparent dies. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42. Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I think that that really points to this other sort of fallacy of thinking that historically, um, when we talk about the evolution of human beings and also even the evolution of human society, but really from more of a biological perspective, we often think only about fitness from a classical Darwinian perspective, just like the genes passing on and the genes thriving. And that's the only thing that matters when it comes to you know, why we exist and how we exist and everything. But the truth is this layer of knowledge and poetry and music and, um, you know, just a depth of of what we can pass on that doesn't directly influence how well 
an egg will become a human and yeah. then that human will survive is still so important to our evolution. Yes. It's yeah. So, important. so, so for, for many species, it's the um, genetic evolution is rule supreme because they don't have cultural evolution like we do. So, right. so the survival of the, um, of the individual depends on their genes. But for humans, because we have cultural evolution, cultural evolution is really about the survival of the group because it's the group survival that then um, um, in, enables the individual survival. We, our survival, our individual survival depends entirely on the survival of the group because we we are not autonomous we can't survive without our group i mean we couldn't even feed ourselves if we had to go straight out there with no knowledge of the world and no not and 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 try and god you should see my you should see my um gardening projects that i've started during this lockdown <laughs> i've tried to grow peas they've all been eaten by the snails i mean um <laughs> i would have starved to death a long time ago if i couldn't rely on this if it makes you feel any better yeah the only gardening project i have in my house is a tabletop robot garden that does all the work for me that some engineers develop oh my god so that is my extent to being able to feed myself that yeah, sounds amazing I, I really actually. that technology. sounds amazing it is great i love it <laughs> But yeah, it is. It it it's so. You're right. Like it's not even to the extent that we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves, that we wouldn't be able to have a successful birth. But even things like and and you know, feral human studies and kind of some of the deeper understanding, sadly, about trauma and abuse situations that we have in the psychological literature and uh, you know, solitary confinement, things like that, have shown that we cannot function alone. Like not only are we not going to pass on healthy children, we have massive psychological breakdowns that often lead to things like suicide or lead to things like, you know, in, in intense, extreme mental illness when we don't have human to human contact. It's like we cannot thrive. We cannot even function. Yeah, without, yeah, yeah. It's uh, true. That kind of I mean, if you think about the very basic um, uh, things about being a human, you know, language, right? Language is not something mm -hmm. that is innate. We're not born speaking and knowing language. However, the ability to speak and the ability to learn uh, language is innate. So, yeah. so our evolution has um, provided us with that, but it's all, again, like birth, it's all predicated on the idea that we are social. So it's, it's, so it relies, our biological evolution to be able to speak language relies on there being a group in, from which to learn language. Mm -hmm. And the window for that is actually quite small. It's only um, a few years. And if you don't hear language in those few years, as we've um, discovered from these tragic um, stories of neglect, then you will never speak. Yeah properly. You will never speak like a native of any language. You have to have, uh, you have to have heard language and be um, talked to because it's a very, um, it's a back and forth process um, speak, speech. And so we all learn that language and it's not just the language that we learn from our group. It's everything. It's how to behave. It's where to find food. It's how to, uh, how to be a person. We learn how to be a human from each other. And, and this again, I mean, um, I talked initially about energy. It comes down to energy because if we had to figure out all of this ourselves, it would take many, many, many lifetimes 
um, for each of us to learn just just the basics of, say, talking. We can only do it, yeah. um, you know, let alone what I'm sitting in a room with um, that's constructed in the most complex fashion from um, hundreds of different materials that have been put together by thousands of different strangers from resources all around the world. And it's all sitting here in the most complex fashion. And I would not be able to recreate this myself at all. And that's even with the knowledge that I've spent a lifetime learning. You know, um, we are dependent on this group to hold our cultural knowledge for us. So um, we've kind of offloaded all of that, um, all of that energy of cognition to learn all the, to um, to hold all this knowledge. So that if I need suddenly to start a fire um, and cook food, it's actually not that hard because I can ask somebody. I can look it up. I can. It's. I'm not. It, I'm not doing it for the very first time trying to invent, you know, reinvent the wheel or learn how to light right. a fire for the first time. That knowledge is held within my group of humanity now because we're not just, I'm not just um, talking about the few people that live around me. I'm talking about, you know, everybody available on the internet and um, people who have lived hundreds of thousands of years before I was born. You know, this, our, um, our cultural knowledge has um, been accumulating, and we have it stored in our stories, in our um, in our books, in our artworks, um, in the buildings around us, in the way that we behave, and the way that we know how to how to grow and cook peas. I mean, peas themselves are not even natural; they they have been bred like that over hundreds of years. So, so, so all of these, our entire kind of human world. Um, it, it relies on this on this um, offload of energy, so that it means that if I want to do anything, I require very very little energy to do anything. Whether it's whether it's come up with a solution for something or whether it's just to prepare a meal, you know, I can do it with a flick of a button. I can just order a delivery, and it will come to my door. Um, and that's extraordinary right. if you think that chimpanzees have to spend hours and hours getting anywhere near the same number of calories that I can just do with a flick of my thumb. Um, and it's all about energy. It's all about energy. Um, and it's made us this incredibly efficient, um, incredibly efficient animal. And of course, you know, this gets back to what you mentioned as sort of your first passion in terms of your educational pursuits. And also when you were starting to write books, you know, and, and you know, the the articles that you've written and, and all of the amazing work that you've done as a science journalist. But as an author, your, your previous book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made, obviously this theme was, was heavy within that. And I guess I want to deconstruct it even a little bit more, um, this concept of energy and energy um, intensity and, and the energy that's required to to for our civilization to change in the way that it has and I'm being very careful with my language because I think historically we have always talked sort of candidly about this as progress right there's technological progress there's improvement this is all progress we've gotten better with our medicine we've gotten better with our with our engines we've gotten better with uh our the ability to travel computational power but with that quote-unquote progress, we're also literally destroying the planet. And there's this interesting um, uh, 
balance, you know, and the scales are tipping in one way. It's like we've been so concerned with medical advancement. How do we perpetuate the species and keep people alive as long as possible, as healthy as possible, which obviously is a noble pursuit. Like, you know, nobody would want to see people suffer and nobody wants to see people die. But at the same time, we're perfectly okay with thousands of other organisms on the planet suffering and dying for that cause. And that's the big picture that we often are kind of naive to look at, I think. Yeah. And it's not just that, you know, the the, the further we go along this trajectory that we're currently in, the more um, we threaten our own survival because, you know, however artificial our world is, it is completely and utterly reliant on the natural world, you know, to clean our air, our water, our, you know, everything that we have comes from the earth at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the more we um, disrupt the natural ecosystems, the the more difficult it is um, for them to support human life, certainly in the seven and a half billion strong population that we have at the moment. I mean, we've already seen um, this pandemic coming out and this is this is, you know, this pandemic is human caused, right? It's because we destroyed the natural ecosystem. And so um, a pathogen that normally has a natural host had the opportunity to jump um, from this destroyed ecosystem into another animal. And because we, you know, humans have this, this different this very cultural value system, which is different from other animals. So our survival, we we don't just value things that help our survival. We don't just value things that give us calories or um, protect us from the cold or or predators or something like that, or make us more um, sexually um, prolific. It's it's not just Mm. that. We also value things that have absolutely no influence on our survival. We value things because they're beautiful, because they um, are carved, because we as a society um, agree to dis- to call something valuable. So gold, for example, which is inert, which um, is just pretty and shiny and pretty much useless. It's too soft to use as a building material. You can't eat it. You know, It's not going to help our survival. And yet it's perhaps the most valuable um, thing in our society. And we've all kind of collectively agreed that, yes, we love gold. It's beautiful. And it's very valuable. Um, and yeah, you're in it. It's so arbitrary. Yeah, it's completely right, arbitrary. Like, and take, what is take it, like, for example, soul, like pyrite, yeah, exactly. You could put next to it and it, it's meaningless it, you, it, or it, it's, um, it's valueless. Like you put it right next to it. It's almost the same thing for all intents and purposes. Exactly. And because our values, so again, you know, we, we, we collectively have to agree on something. And it's all about, again, it's all about um, this collective agreement, the story that we tell each other. And, and so if you take, for example, pangolin scales, pangolin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
There's yeah. this um, this animal from the forest, which um, which is um, a mammal which has keratin scales, which is kind of rare, but um, the scales are just keratin. It's exactly the same protein that our fingernails are made of, that, um, you know, um, hair and skin. But society has decided that pangolin scales are valuable. You know, they're not kind of um, chop, you know, cutting people's fingernails and selling the clippings, which is exactly the same thing and would have exactly the same um, um, effect on fertility or whatever else. That is zero effect. Yeah, it could actually have well, the yeah. effect. Yeah, it has exactly. no effect. But if that's what you're selling it for, you know, it's that's that's um, that, you know, it has it has exactly the same effect because it's exactly the same material. Mm. And yet fingernail clippings, weirdly, are not valued, whereas pangolin scales right. are. So as a result, if we tip that value scale and we say as a society that pangolins are valuable, that means they are taken out of the natural ecosystem, tra- you know, um, traded across um, continents sometimes um, and sold for mm-hmm. high value Um and of course, they come with their pathogens, or the pathogen can um, can uh, evolve a sort of halfway into that. We're not sure whether um, the uh, SARS COVID uh, virus um, uh, came from bats or pangolins, but we see um, in both of these um, species, we see um, a sort right. of halfway house there. And then it infects humans. And then because of the way that we act, because we are not um lions who keep to their pride and um you know act in that way because we are this socially networked globally networked species that trades between trades and has sex and um and communicates everything ideas genes and also disease across continents that has the ability to spread and then because of the way our society is set up um with its economy that is also global, it means the economy has crashed because of, you know, I mean, you can just see the whole, the whole systemic way that human, that humans um, act. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting because also the, um, the global physical systems are also systemic. You know, the effect of the atmosphere affects um, um, the energy in the atmosphere, affects the energy in the oceans, the um, the biology of the oceans also has an effect on that. All of these are feedback loops and they're all systemic, but human society um, and human culture is also systemic and they affect each other. So um, that's why we're in the Anthropocene and that's why um, we're threatening ourselves um, with our own kind of with our own activity with our own progress in in um, technology you know as as we've been talking one thing that's become really really salient for me is how important and urgent some of these conversations are and how I think in many ways at least from my perspective and perhaps this this uh, is a function of my political persuasion. Perhaps this is a function of, you know, my own academic interests in psychology and social justice and and diversity. But I've, especially more recently, really codified in many ways my views that the value judgments and the value statements around some of these scientific conversations 
are fundamental and are necessary to play devil's advocate to that perspective, because I know that these are the kinds of emails that will sometimes get to the SGU accounts and also sometimes I'll receive less so, I think, though, for Talk Nerdy, is that we often will get kind of, you know, people who are self-described um, skeptics, um, which I really support, right? But they will often try and make arguments for removing the value or removing the morality from these scientific conversations. And so I guess my question to you is, how do you respond to people who think that whether we're talking about social justice advocacy work or whether we're just talking about describing these kinds of fundamental human um, uh, truths, these fundamental human, you know, evidence-based conversations in a value or... Um, uh, like it in in a context that requires that we make value judgments. Like, how do you respond to people who say this is science? There's no morality in science, for example. Well, science is a human invention. It's a cultural invention. We um, we came up with this. It's a process. It's a way of looking at the world, and I think it's a really interesting way of looking at the world. It's an attempt. It's a it's an attempt to be objective. It's an attempt right. to not be subjective. But of course, who is doing the objective uh, looking and the objective recording and the objective measurement taking and theorizing? Well, of course, it's humans. And humans are, they are, they are led by values. They're led by all the other things that we've been talking about, this idea of tribalism. This, uh, we are, we are um, formed in a cultural developing bath. We we come into the world really as um, as these pathetic beings that are sculpted by our social and physical environment, um, which 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 really define us. So so everything you think is is um, is your opinion and um, your taste in something, or your your you know the, whether you think. Monet is is a is a beautiful artwork, or um, or um, or Van Gogh, or or whoever. These are. It's very hard to say whether that's an objective valuation or not. Just as whether you decide that it's important or not to um, measure the transit of Venus um, and and um, how you might take those measurements and whose land you might go through and what sort of records you might take of those places that you pass through. Um, these are scientific endeavors, but they don't come in a vacuum because, because they are made within a cultural, a social world full of values. And so I think we need to always be very mindful of, um, of how claims are made, what the basis for them are, and what effects they might have. You know, science isn't, isn't conducted in, in a vacuum. Um, and I think that's, that's more important than ever to understand. And it could be, it could be a lot, um, a lot less destructive and it, and it is destructive. Um, and, yeah. and the way to do that is to make it more inclusive, is to make sure mm. that, um, that what you're doing, the values of what you're doing are aligned with all different members of society that um, are impacted. So it's to do with making sure that, um, especially 
especially, you know, if, if we're talking about pure mathematical formulae, which are just, um, are just, um, it's just a sort of um, a progress of um, equations from one end to the other, then that's one thing. But even that, you know, what, what are you trying to discover with that? Are you trying to work out with your pure mathematical equations exactly how your Mars lander is going to orient itself on Mars? And if you are, right. you know, is that, is that really the best use of uh, millions of dollars? You know, everything is political because it all comes out of a human world. Um, so your motivations for doing it are important, even if the even if that is perhaps the most objective kind of science I can think of, um, pure maths. Um, You're so right. You're so right. Like I was talking recently to Keith Cooper, um, another episode on my show, he wrote a book called The Contact Paradox. And we were talking about SETI and about, you know, who is in the room when they try to decide how we might interface with, um, you know, an intelligent or a cognitive civilization if we were to ever make contact. And, and I was, you know, basically saying it's not okay that we don't have indigenous voices in the room, that we're just continuing a colonial tradition, uh, an anthropo anthropological tradition of like white Westerners saying, this is how we're going to interface with people or even with an alien species. We have obviously made massive missteps in the past. Shouldn't some of the cultures that have been interfaced with over time be able, not just be able to, but be the dominant force in shaping how we, you know, do something as what we think of as esoteric as develop SETI policy? But, you know, these I totally, Having yeah, I totally agree. Point, it's so important. Of course it is. Of course it's like, so important because because we are not like we are not this narrow this narrow um we're not this narrow uh perspective at all. You know, we are right. actually an incredibly complex and diverse species, and that's that's incredible and it's to be celebrated. But but too often I think we we're very reductive and um and we think of our perspective as somehow um, better um, than 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 another human's perspective, or somehow more um, more educated. But educated in what way? You know, because um, all humans are educated, whether it's um, formally or or through learning. You know, we all come into the world dependent on our group to learn everything that we know, and that group tells us everything we need to know to fit in to our it's it's an adaptation process it's to fit in it's yeah. to adapt to our particular um social and physical environment you know you and i are very easy a very very find it very easy to navigate um um a really busy uh city with lots of different junctions with cars going right left and center you know people crowding everywhere we and we could easily mm -hmm. Uh, navigate a street, find a coffee shop and get a coffee in, in pretty much any city around the world. But 
and we have. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. But, but, you know, um, would we find it so easy if dumped in a, a rainforest to find um, food to eat, um, what plants um, are poisonous, um, how to construct some sort of nest or house, how to make right, fire? Absolutely not. You know, not at all. And yet, um, this is absolutely basic stuff for um, a child or teenager from that culture. They they can they they know their environment and their social environment. They wouldn't make with lucky landslots. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Any taboos in their culture, if they, they are sitting around a fire um, with with members of their society know exactly how and who to approach and in what way and what to say and what gifts should be given and what you know we would have no clue of that and yet um no and even more basic than that like I remember when I spent time in in the Peruvian Amazon for the first two three days my and I said this out loud I mean naively but also I think to make a point was that, I didn't see anything alive. Like, obviously, the trees were alive and the grasses. But I was like, where is all of the wildlife? And, and people were like, yeah, this is normal. When you first get into the Amazon, you simply can't even see all of the thriving wildlife because it's so different than what you're used yeah, to. Yeah, you have to get and your eye in. You maybe, have to get your eye in and yeah, know what like, you're looking for. Yeah. Two or three days in, you're like, oh my God, there's spiders everywhere. There's, you know, birds everywhere. But the first few days, you're like, wow, the Amazon is weirdly barren. <laughs> just ludicrous but it is it's it's there's an adaption period and and you're so right like this is I, i've been thinking this whole time that we've been talking like trying to come up with some sort of visual representation of exactly the thesis of your book and i see it almost like there's this tapestry or this woven piece whether it's a blanket or a piece of fabric right and we often like to think that that's the biology and then that the culture is like painted on top of it. But the truth of the matter is the culture is a dye within the threads. You cannot remove it lest you like unravel the entire thing. It's so in there. That's so brilliant. That That's exactly right. And the pattern, the pattern mm -hmm. of, of the of the fabric um, that is made by the woven dyed um, threads is, is yeah. that, that environment we make our own environment as well and that affects that affects where the threads are placed and it affects it affects Absolutely. everything so so we are really we really are a product of our environment our genes our biology and our culture and, and yeah you can't you can't t tease them apart even the the way we speak the languages that we speak they depend on you know if, if you 
if you, if you uh, your language has evolved in like a warm, wet, woody area like South Asia, Southeast Asia, then your language mm. will have more vowels um, and fewer consonants. Whereas if your language doesn't evolve in a rainforest, then like English or um, uh, uh, other languages like that, they, they burst with content- consonants because the the environment in itself. Um, has exerts an evolutionary pressure on on the language, which is a culture, which is a cultural invention. Language completely culturally invented. But then we wouldn't be able to speak language at all. Chimps can't speak language, however much you teach them, if we didn't have that biology, um, that yeah. evolved biology to enable us to do so. Um, and so, and so we really are this product. I mean, it's it's really hard to think of us as this kind of um, really clever. Um, innovative species because we do so much by copying we do so much from just the immersion in our in our um, cultural developing bath as we grow up we it's it's sort of um we just learn from each other we don't really invent it so so most of what we do we can't really take credit for because um it's just and that that applies you know equally to um the very very wealthy people in our society the um the geniuses working in academia and the very poorest people you know it's so much of it is socially imposed circumstance it's not the individual people so you know people like donald trump very wealthy very powerful might pat himself on the back for being super smart i think most of us <laughs> might might think perhaps it's not down to his cleverness. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right? And yet, you know, there may yeah. be a cleaner working in a hospital somewhere, you know, on the breadline, barely scraping it together. Is that because that person's really stupid or just um not very uh you know not not very canny with money or just um lazy well no you know i think we know that actually our society this group society that we have constructed ourselves really can restrict us to our place as well if we if we let it yeah and i think the people who don't know that like who honestly when they're really looking in themselves, believe that there's a level playing field or that everybody has the same opportunities. Those people would not believe that if they weren't in the privileged group. You simply cannot think that way unless you are privileged enough to have well, that's, those opportunities. That is absolutely true. But then the flip side for that is that if you live in a society which spends its whole time telling you that the reason that um, some people are um, rich and privileged is because they're just generally better. You can start yeah. to believe if you're not in that group that you that you just aren't. As you know, a lot of women suffer, for example, from um, from fear that they're just not as clever or they're just not they're not they're not kind of worthy of whatever they do manage to achieve. And um, and it's the same with um, groups that are prejudiced against, like minority groups, people with brown yeah. skin or people who. Um, people who come from very impoverished backgrounds or so on they can they can feel kind of not good enough in a in an, in a meeting where and or in a in a social situation which is entirely geared up to make you know the predominant white man feel comfortable they feel out of Absolutely. place and that feeling of being out of place then then makes them look out of place and it just it feeds back and and we we 
as a society, we, we put people in their places and make it hard for them to, to move out of that. And I think that's, that's such a failing and something that um, certain, certainly some societies are doing a lot more about addressing than others. Right. I mean, here uh, here at home in in, in um, L.A., you know, as, which is part of American society, I can I can 100 percent attest to this like basic m- massive cultural gaslighting that we see. And, and it's so, I think, encapsulated by the famous doll tests around the Brown versus Board of Education um, uh a series of cases and you can google this you guys you can go online and you can look at videos from the doll test where uh the clark um couple there you know two psychologists um i think a married couple named clark um they basically sat down little little black kids they're toddlers and they showed them a white doll and a black doll and they just asked them questions about them and it's heartbreaking to see their answers like they would say which doll is the better doll and they would point to the white doll which doll is the smarter doll the white doll which doll is uglier and they'd point to the black doll and then at the end they would say you know like which doll looks more like you and they would point to the black doll they knew that they were black and they thought that they were uglier or or stupider or whatever because that's what society told them. And this was internalized in three, four, five year olds. I mean, it's horrifying. Yeah, and it's these videos are so powerful. Um, I really, yeah, do do watch them if you haven't seen them. But they 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 they're really powerful. And I think what what it shows us is that um, is that what we do first is not innovate our own. Um, opinions on things and our own um, judgment and assessment on things. What we do is absorb in our cultural developing bath. We're incredibly good at this. We're better than any other animal. We absorb what our society tells us and what our society agrees is right. And we trust that more because because our survival is entirely dependent on learning from our community. So if we learn that um, this berry is poisonous and that one um, is edible, but only after it's been cooked for 45 minutes and then soaked in, you know, a saline solution and then mashed and whatever, then it's then, <laughs> then it's um, edible, then we will learn all that and we will thrive, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm. we learn that in our society, um, black people are lesser or black people, um, you know, are not uh, are not valued as well. We will internalize that as that's what society agrees, so that's what's true, and that's and and we do that from the the youngest um, child, and 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 then you believe that even if even if you you know intellectually can overcome that and realize that that right. it, you know that it's not true, it's it's this is a, a huge difficulty to try and overcome it um, emotionally. Because, um, no, it's like in your bones, you can't like, I think about the fact that I, obviously I dedicate my life to this kind of science communication, but also I'm working on my PhD right now in clinical psych. So I'm focusing and my concentration is social justice and diversity. I'm taking courses. I'm reading literature about gender inequity, about racial inequity, things of that nature. Yet still, 
as somebody who dedicates their life and reads about this all the time, do I have body image issues? Of course I do. Do I have internalized prejudices? Of course I do. I don't want to. And cognitively, I'm trying to fight against them, but I feel them in my bones. Yeah, yeah. And that's because, like you said, of the bath that I was developed in. Mm. And that's why it's And society so colludes. Society colludes right, to keep this right. um, in place, even though it's actually yeah. really damaging for society generally, because more more egalitarian societies are generally much more um, innovative. Their culture evolves much, much um, faster because because everybody's there's there's more inclusion in the network of ideas being mm-hmm. shared, of uh, perspectives, and then you know innovation happens when two different ideas um, are combined to produce a third one. It's very rarely this kind of like incredible bolt from the blue inspiration that you just come up with something new. Generally, it's it's about um, seeing different ideas and combining them in different ways, or occasionally something, you know, um, serendipitous drops out, you know, a kind of mutation in the evolution of technology or something. But but if but the wider your your pool of and the more diversity you have and the more um the more connected um everybody is to each other the the more your culture evolves and the and um and and so the better everybody's life is and and if you keep people very separate and if you keep people um if you keep certain sectors of society down and don't let them join in these conversations then you're missing out massively on all sorts of on right. all sorts of things. So it's it's bad for everybody, not just that it's completely unjust and and horrible for people living in that society. Uh I couldn't I couldn't agree more and I think that Gaia on that note I mean I've kept you so much longer than I promised I would but I was hoping that I could ask you the same two questions that I close my podcast um asking each of my guests they're really big picture questions and of course you wrote like one of the biggest picture books you could possibly write so I have a feeling you'll have an interesting perspective are you ready for it I them? am I'm slightly nervous <laughs> <laughs> as you should be more uh-huh. No. Um, all right. So when you think of the future, so you're looking forward now in whatever context is relevant to you, whether you're working on a new project and you know you have certain things on your mind, what's happening in society right now, or even something maybe more personal with your own home life or family. Um, number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night? The thing that you are most um, concerned about, pessimistic, maybe even borderline cynical about? Like what is you know, not looking good. But then on the flip side of that, to end on a slightly uh, more, I guess, relaxed and positive note, what are you genuinely optimistic, you know, about? What are you really, truly looking forward to? Well, um, there's so much going on in the world at the moment, isn't there? That's really terrifying. Right. You know, climate change, um, this uh, this horrific inequality that's that's rising globally and in 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 every single way. Um, environmental destruction, biodiversity loss. I could list so many, but I think right at the moment it's um, it's Brexit. That's what's keeping me up at night because we're heading towards mm-hmm. a No Deal Brexit, and this is such a reductive state to be in because at the moment you know we need to be collaborating and cooperating more 
between nations and um, between groups of nations. We can only solve these enormous global crises if we all work together. And, you know, this rise of populism and this um, retreat into nation states is incredibly troubling, I think. I mean, I don't think it will last forever, but at the moment, um, I think it's setting back Britain in this in this horrific way, in every way from, you know, scientific collaborations to environmental progress to um to uh, well you know ec- economically it's an absolute disaster so um it's it's depressing because um even if you know my family manages to get through without too much of a problem um there are going to be millions of people who really really suffer as a result of this so that's what um that's what's keeping me up at night but on the flip side um even though we are facing an absolutely catastrophic um, climate change. I'm so encouraged by uh, the progress that we've had socially over the last year or so um, with uh, Greta Thunberg and the Extinction Rebellion and these new um, these new global um, attempts at at setting targets for climate for carbon emissions and really reducing really setting out um, ways to reduce reduce those carbon emissions and and the most encouraging thing is this rise in renewable energy i mean it's so cheap now to make solar panels it's cheaper to build a new solar pa- a new solar farm than it is um, to run existing coal fired power stations in large parts of the world. So that's hugely exciting. So um, so I am feeling a bit more optimistic about that. I do think that we've got a long way to go. Um, I think there's going to be a massive, massive human migration, which nobody's talking about. Um, right. Uh, but but you know, I have to be optimistic on that. Um, part because uh because otherwise there's no hope and without hope we're kind of lost <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's a th- we need to maintain um a purpose right we need to maintain at least some something to keep us moving and i guess maybe that is the silver lining of problems of conflict of inequity of things like that is that um we're not anywhere close to living in a utopia we're we're in many ways in a very dystopian um society and because of that there's work to be done and i think that that will keep us hopefully motivated to write some of these historical wrongs i don't know if we can ever actually write them but at least start to not start, continue the work to adjust the scales in a way that allow us to have a more egalitarian future. I think most Um, people see that as well. I mean, I've been hugely, hugely encouraged by um, the Black Black Lives Matter protests. You know, it's Mm -hmm. such a wide spectrum of people. It's not just um, black people. It's people of all colors. It's people of all ages, you know, coming out to say, you know, this is not okay. This is not okay. We want yeah. we want fundamental change, and it's not just in the United States. It's spread it's spread across the world, and it's just been um, it's given. It's really it's made me really really hopeful. I really think that change change might be coming because you know this is not something new that we're suddenly facing. Um, but there's there's been a reckoning, I think, and that makes me so hopeful um, that that you know the next generation it, it might be better. 
Yeah, I really hope it doesn't slow down because the great news is it is affecting change. We're seeing policy changes at police departments across the country. We're seeing people brought to, um, you know, people are being arrested for these atrocious murders that probably would not have been arrested before. We're still yet to see if they're actually going to be convicted. That's the real kind of win. But, you know, accountability is is happening because the thing is, they can't ignore our voices anymore. And so within at least these places where the power structure is so lopsided and where the inequality and the um, the violence and the brutality is so obvious, at least the lowest hanging fruit is very easy to bring into the light. And the harder, I think, entrenched systemic things, they take time um, and they take a lot of energy. But uh, the good news is that some of the most obvious things are being reckoned with right now and we're seeing real change being affected. And that, I mean, it pleases me really greatly. Um, so for anybody who's like exhausted by the news or who's just like obviously depressed about what's going on in the world, I think that silver lining right there, like we're seeing it get better in front of our eyes. And also to remember that the civil rights movement was in many ways, a re- not a result, but was linked to these kinds of sit-ins and these kinds of protests. And we're talking for years these this new wave of protests that most people are aware of, this has only been a few weeks, right? And don't get me wrong, in Ferguson and in places like that, the protests never stopped and they've been going for years as well. But for most people who are privileged enough to, to just now becoming aware of this... This, it's only been a few weeks. <laughs> like it's it's got to keep going. I know it's it's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary what we've it, seen, and and it's just right. it's just this um, this uh, making it obvious, bringing it out, exposing what's what's been going on for years and years and years has suddenly. I think it's people who have had the um, the privilege uh, to be able to ignore what's been going on. Because, I mean, it has been obvious. It has been obvious. um, You can't escape what's been going on. Um, But people who have had the privilege to ignore it have no longer got that excuse because it's everywhere now. It's all over our newspapers, our our televisions. And so either you have to, you know, you have to take a stand. You either say, um, oh, uh, that's fine. It's fine to live in a horrific, racist, brutal state. Or you have to say it's not okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> black people yeah. do matter. Yeah. Um, so, so before there were, I think a large there was a large section of society that was able to comfortably ignore it, and that's been a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And and that that is not the case anymore. They're not able to ignore it. I hope they don't right. go back to being able to, because you know, it's. I mean, it's shocking. And not just comfortably ignore it, but, but you know, uh, passively and sometimes actively, but definitely passively benefit from it. And that's really the, the point. I mean, a really salient meme that I've seen going around that's such an important thing is, uh, says something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, privilege is just now realizing that systemic racism exists and not living it every day of your life. And that's the important thing that we have to remember. If you're just now waking up to this issue, you have been privileged your entire life. And maybe now is the time to pay some of that forward, some of that privilege that you have had, you know, some of that um, just out, out of function of nothing that you did, right? You were just born into it. But if you were lucky enough to have all of the 
um, societal and systemic privileges that came with your white skin without anything you did now that you're having that awakening to realize that this is something that you have benefited from your entire life, maybe now you is the time to become an ally and realize how great it would be if everyone on the planet got to experience that same kind of privilege. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's that, um, the veil of ignorance, you know, the veil of ignorance, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, thought, <laughs> thought experiment where, where you you are in a room waiting to be born and you um can you don't have a choice over what and where you will be born what you will be born as and where um you could be born as a yeah. person anywhere you know what sort of, how would you create society you know would you have these luscious um palaces but then other people living in a slum um you know, considering that only a very, very, very tiny percentage of people, so your your likelihood of being born as as um, you know uh, Ivana Trump is so tiny, you know, would you take that risk or would you prefer to have a much more equal society so that you know your life is going to be fine, whoever you are born as? I think that's something to um, to consider. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, Gaia, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours more. I really hope that after, you know, some of these restrictions are lifted and after lockdown goes away, that the next time I'm in the UK or the next time you're in Los Angeles, we have a chance to hang out in person because um, I just, I so enjoyed this conversation and I feel like there are many more to be had. Um, Gosh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. I would love to meet you in person. It's (laughs) it's such a shame. (laughs) We're, we're trapped in these in these uh, lockdown situations. I would love to. Um, I would love to meet you in person. I could have talked for hours. Um, thanks for having such oh. interesting questions. My goodness. Oh yay! Of course. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back and joining us week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.